Hello, and welcome to the Uncover Up with your hosts Lee Kuhn Lee and Nathan Radke. speak German, correct? I do. All right, I want you to translate something for me, and my accent's <laughs> going to be okay. bad. Großmutter gestorben. Ah, Großmutter gestorben. Thank you. Uh, is grandmother dead. Grandmother dead. All right, I wanted to start off by talking about grandmother dead. Okay, or grandmother has died, I guess, but... Now, that was the code name for... A, an operation that was done at the just the very dawn of World War II, the very beginning of World War II, right before the invasion of Poland by Germany. This is what happened. And this is according to an interview that was done by a British writer named Kummer Clark, who tracked down a former SS Sturmbannführer. Can I see the, how it's spelled? Sturm, Sturmbannführer. Uh, uh, yeah, I, while I can spell it or pronounce it, I don't actually know what it means. Well, while we're it's pronouncing some... things, maybe you can, <laughs> before I even give it a try, how would you pronounce that last name? Uh, Alfred Neuyorks. Neuyorks. All right, so in 1958, this British writer tracks down uh, Alfred Neuyorks. And Neuox had been a fairly high-level officer in the SS. <clears throat> and of course the SS was Hitler's uh, stormtroopers, uh, intelligence agencies, like all wrapped up into one organization. And what Neuox told Clark was kind of a shocking story of how World War II actually started. Because what happened was, uh, with orders from Hitler, the SS took a bunch of their own soldiers and a man named Franz Honiak, who was a prisoner, they all went to a German radio station on the Polish-German border uh -huh. in a place called Gleiwitz. And what they did was the German soldiers dressed up like Polish soldiers and they attacked the radio station. Now, the people at the radio station did not know this was going to happen. They thought that they were genuinely under attack, but they were obviously outgunned and outnumbered, so they surrendered almost immediately. At that point, the German soldiers, one of which spoke Polish, took over the radio station, announced something along the lines of, do you speak Polish? No. No, me neither. Translated, it says, attention, this is Gleiwitz, the broadcasting station is in Polish hands. <laughs> so basically announcing that Poland had seized control over this German radio station. But of course, the whole thing was faked. There were no Polish soldiers, they were German soldiers dressed as Poles. To make it more convincing, they took Mr. Honiak and shot him in the head. They shot him in the head and left him by the radio station dressed as a Polish soldier hmm. as further evidence that, in fact, Poland had attacked Germany. And the, uh, at this point, uh, Hitler goes on to the radio and announces that Polish army hooligans have finally exhausted our patience, and this basically is justification for the German invasion of Poland. Wow, so this actually is the event that starts World War II. The event that starts World War II 
German soldiers dressed like Polish soldiers attacking a German radio station, shooting a guy in the head and leaving him to further sort of corroborate what's what's going that that story that was concocted. Wow. Now, there must be a name for this. Yeah. This general approach of countries that want to invade or want to go to war with another country, kind of faking it. Yeah, and I think it's a nautical term, and it's a term that I'm sure people are familiar with because it's such a crucial concept as far as conspiracy theories go. And, of course, the idea is the idea of the false flag. Hmm. When you fly up a flag that is not your own so that you can then commit some kind of atrocity or attack, and then blame the nation or the organization of the flag that you used. Right. In order, so, and gen, this would always be done in order to have an excuse to go to war with these people or to, to get something from them. Yeah. Is that right? Well, did you have siblings or still have siblings? I do not, nor did I. Okay, so you would not have used this tactic, but I had two sisters and still have two sisters. And one of the best ways to get them in trouble with your parents is to tell your parents that they did something bad to you. Right, of course, yes. Well, I do have two children, and they're doing this all the time So yeah, other. So you probably have false flags occurring in your household oh, okay. pretty much incessantly. Right. Uh, although I have to admit they're not nearly as organized as the one you just recounted. No, or as vicious and horrible, hopefully. That is interesting. You know, I have a, another example that follows very much along this line. One that, after you told me about the Gleiwitz incident, and being, I have to admit, being German, uh, this came as a shock to me, because I did not actually, once you started talking about this, I did not know how World War II actually began. I looked into it a little further and found my own false flag that happened a couple of years earlier. This one was against the Chinese by the Japanese. Happens in 1931, and it is known as the Mukden Incident, if I am pronouncing that correctly. I have no idea. All right, so very quickly to talk about a bit of historical context. 1931, uh, it's a few years before World War II. That's right. This is at a time when Japan has an interest in sort of expanding their empire, in gaining control of sort of strategic reserves of things like oil, and moving into other areas, both in mainland Asia and then in and in, in islands around the Pacific. That's exactly right. Um, Japan in the first half of the 20th century is establishing itself as an imperial power in the Far East, in the Pacific Ocean. And there's been, they had a, a war of sorts with China in 1894. Then there's uh, the uh, Russo-Japanese War in 1904-1905. Um, they go to war with Korea in 1910. And so this is part of a legacy of trying to establish themselves as the dominant imperial power there. Actually, interestingly, the war with Japan, uh, sorry, the war between Russia and Japan uh, sets the stage for what goes down here in China. Because what, well, I'll get back to that, but what happened at the end of the Russo-Japanese War is the Japanese won. And uh, as part of the treaty that ended that war, Japan gained control of a railway in China. Now, I should mention, it's worth, you know, thinking about how we know about this, because, of course, there's a lot of claims that false flags happen uh, throughout history, and not all of them can be substantiated. I think we're going to look at some of those later today. But um, we know about the incidents, uh, the Mukden incident, because of a, a military tribunal that convenes 
Well, I don't know. Is it actually a military tribunal? It is Japan's version of the Nuremberg trials. So after the Second World War, there is a trial that tries to open up, you know, did Japan commit war crimes and who were the people responsible? And in this uh, trial, there is the revelation of the Mukden incident. The fact that Japan enacted a false flag uh, attack against China in 1931. So this is not disputed in as much as you know, a lot of other false flags um, might be. And this one is pretty pretty much accepted by most people, I'm assuming also by the J Japanese uh, historical records. And actually, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East is what it's called. Um, and it's a really interesting document because there is quite a lot of a lot of account in there about how it all went down, but basically this is what happened. The Japanese inherit this railway track from uh, Russia that the Russians owned and operated in China. It's in, it's in uh, the northern part of China. As, as, a, as a result of the Russo-Japanese uh, War and the Treaty of Portsmouth, which ended it, the Japanese get this railway track in northern China. And what they decide to do in 1931, they decide to blow it up. Blow up their uh, own railway track. Blow up their own railway track. Uh, because the Japanese were at this point uh, interested in furthering their Im imperial domination in this region and wanted essentially to, to land grab parts of China. And what they did was uh, concocted an excuse. And they dressed themselves up as uh, Chinese military soldiers. They dressed themselves up as soldiers. And they went and they bombed their own railway, and they did it really badly, and it didn't really cause very much damage, and I think they had to go back and try and blow it up a second time. But either way, just like the Gleiwitz incident, um, the Japanese then immediately seized on this and used it as an excuse to invade that part of China and set up Manchuria and a puppet state. So I think people might be wondering at this point, why would a nation go through with this sort of charade? Why wouldn't they just invade another country? Like, why do the, the fake justification for it? What is the reason why these countries pull off these false flags rather than just invading the countries they want to invade? You know, that's a, that's a good question, and I'm going to give you the kind of pat answer that I've prepared for this, but I'm not... I think there's something more interesting that underlies it. Um, I think generally it plays badly with your population if it's just clearly a big strong bully beating up somebody who is maybe, you know, quite incapable of defending themselves. Certainly Germany versus Poland. Um, at the time that Germany has been rearming themselves for the last decade. Um, you sort know, of semi-secretly. Semi-secretly, but only, you know, not so much on the semi part. Right. Like, you can only say, yes, we're building thousands and thousands of tractors and That's right. airliners. That's right. So I think that it provides a kind of justification. It always, it seems to play very badly uh, to be the aggressor. Mm -hmm. uh, Even amongst your own people. Yeah. And I guess it could get your own people sort of fired up and behind you. Because yeah. I think, in general, people tend to not really want to go to war. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I wonder. There's been so many instances of war that there, I wonder if there isn't some other... Well, that's the great confusing part of humanity, is that it seems like we don't want to go to war. War seems wildly unpopular. It's horrifying. It's destructive. 
but it's also an endeavor that we seem to be undertaking pretty much all of the time. That's right. That's right. I mean, a false flag seems a little bit to me like when you know you've done something wrong, but you can't really admit it, and then you concoct a big giant story about why you were actually right to do the thing that you did that you knew it was wrong. So it's a justification for your own people, and I imagine also a justification in the international community. That's right. If you simply attack a nation, I feel like the international community would react to that. That seems like a pretty simple example of some something that is immoral and should be stopped, and so the response might be very quick. If you can sort of confuse the issue or mm -hmm. muddy the waters by saying, well, we got attacked first, then that might provide just enough of a, even a temporary pause in the reaction while people try to figure out the truth, and then by then, you've already rolled into the country. That's right. And and actually, that's a, the international community part is a really important aspect not to lose sight of because, of course, uh, often that uh, country's trade relations is dependent on their standing in the international community. And that then comes down to your bottom dollar. I mean, you want to be able to if you have decided to go to war, you still want to be able to maintain food and trade and, 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 and open relations. So I think that's a really important point that you bring up, that it's also in the face of the others looking on. And in fact, with Japan, nobody believed their flimsy excuse that the Chinese uh, blew up the Japanese railway. And so they were, uh, they were called on it, and they got so annoyed at being called on it that they actually left uh, the international community that they were participating in in 1933 and they become isolationist then until the Second World War. Right, and then of course that is one of the reasons why we we see the way that Japan went throughout the 30s once they were more isolated from the rest of the community, the international community, then some of the actions that happened afterwards start to make more sense. And I think one of the actions that we should talk about because we're talking about false flags and we're sort of in this time zone anyway, is maybe we should take a quick break and then discuss the attack at Pearl Harbor. Okay. talk about a false flag that maybe wasn't, namely Pearl Harbor. Actually, do you want to set the stage a little bit about Pearl Harbor? What do we, what's going on here? Okay, so Pearl Harbor is a American Navy base in Hawaii. Very important strategic location because, of course, Hawaii is way off there in the Pacific Ocean, which gives the Americans a fairly long reach into that massive ocean. As you recall, we talked about before, Japan had sort of these this interest in becoming a more powerful imperial nation and they were starting to spread throughout the Pacific. Now, in December of 1941, World War II was raging. Uh, England and Germany were at war. The Battle of Britain was happening. Uh, Britain was basically being starved out by the, the German U-boats, preventing supplies from getting to the... American the supplies, you mean, right? They had like a blockade. Okay. Yeah, American supplies and also Canadian supplies. Right, of Canada, course. of course, yeah. was, was in the war at that point because we were uh, tightly allied with England at that moment. But one country that was not in the war, even at the late date of 1941, 
was the United States. That's right. And they and and as far as I know, the population did not want to be in that war. They weren't wild about it. They didn't want to be in the First World War because people, I think justifiably said, why would we want to get involved in this European nonsense? That's right. And they stayed out of it for quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, they, what They went in in 1918. 1917. 1917. Okay, okay. but they, they're getting in close to the end of the war. I mean, the war starts in 1914. Um, so... And, and, and it is funny, right? You have a whole population that says we don't want to get into World War One, and then they do. And then they do. And now you have a whole population that says, well, we definitely don't want to get into World War Two. But one person, one America, one American who did want to get into World War Two was the president of the United States at the time, uh, FDR. FDR Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Not, not Theodore Roosevelt. No. No, not right. Teddy. Not the Teddy. No. The other one. So what's interesting is that if you look uh, back to newspaper editorials at the time, you'll see that the American people were, I mean, many of them were sort of concerned about the rise of fascism that was happening in Europe, people like Mussolini and Franco and Hitler. But there was a lot of Americans who were more concerned about their own president. Hmm. They were more concerned about Roosevelt being the sort of power-hungry madman than they were about these European leaders. Well, and some of that, as I understand, comes from... The New Deal, no? And uh, now this is a different part of history, but in the 1930s, uh, he enacts a whole bunch of what is seen as rather left-wing economic measures, and people are thinking, well, this guy is kind of too far to the left, and apparently a lot of business people were not so happy with. In fact, what I'd like to do eventually is maybe do a podcast on the business plot. Yes. The possibility that a bunch of business people actually got together to try to overthrow... Uh, That's right, because Roosevelt it, and install uh, Fuhrer. Or, yeah, uh, and this whole period is so rife with conspiracies. I mean, we're just sort of like stumbling into them as as we talk. And so that's, I mean, all of that sort of leads the American people to mostly think, no, let's not get into this war. They were sympathetic to England, of course. The King of England had flown over and eat, he had eaten a hot dog. And I've, oh, seen, okay. I've seen a photograph of okay. it. It's a very big moment in diplomacy. Eating a hot dog wasn't enough to get the American people to go hmm. to war. There's basically only one thing that would convince the American people to go into this war that Roosevelt wanted, mm -hmm. and that would have been if they were attacked, if the United right. States was attacked. And then in December 1941... The that's, United States gets attacked. That's exactly what happens. And it's a pretty, it's a very surprising attack. It's a brutal attack. Uh, I think I have the number here somewhere. 300, I have to find it. 360 planes were launched from uh, Japanese aircraft carriers. Now, and this was a new form of warfare at the time, too, mm -hmm. to be able to have... <clears throat> Your aircraft, which were emerging as one of the most powerful weapons, right? Okay, so I knew you were going to geek out on this, so I well, decided to. Out. I decided to geek out a little bit too. And here's what I discovered: the Japanese and the Americans in World War II at this period. Okay, and the Americans have not yet joined, but fine. The Japanese and the Americans are at the forefront of building aircraft carriers. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who, and and maybe even Japanese has a slight edge on the Americans. Oh yeah, definitely. As far as the quality of their pilots, who were hmm. highly trained and who had already seen a lot of war in mainland Asia, right. and the quality of the planes. They had uh, A6M Zeros, which at the time were by far the most agile, maneuverable, hard-hitting... You did not craft. let me say Mitsubishi A6M Zero. I yeah. was so looking forward to oh, that. Okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll, edit that in. we'll edit that part in. 
Um, but yes, so this is the Japanese fighter plane, right? Mm -hmm. So in addition um, to the Zeros, they also had torpedo plane. But okay, so the, the attack was, it happens on a Sunday morning. Uh, the date is uh, December 7th. So it's December, the attack happens in the morning of December 7th, 1941. It's a Sunday. Nobody's ex ex a sleepy Sunday. It's a sleepy Sunday. Nobody is expecting an attack. Um, they're not at readiness of any sort. And but there are some scout ships that go out or planes, and they come back and they report that there are ships. Like um, a massive amount of ships. Yeah, massive amount of ships that are under. I think there was they're ten steaming. airport carriers, uh, aircraft carriers, and three hundred and sixty planes. If that makes sense. And then they have. Really, until I think the attacks of September eleventh, two thousand and one, these are the uh, lar This is the largest single attack on Americans by by anyone other than by Americans. a foreign power on American soil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is definitely true. Okay, now. And the battle itself is decisive in favor of the Japanese. That's right, because um, the because the Americans aren't expecting anything, they don't get their planes in the air. They don't get their ship. Their their ships are all um, anchored too close to each other. They had battleships. The aircraft carriers were out at sea, which is one of the su suspicious parts. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. So they had their but they had battleships all in a row. Okay. So they had battleships in a row because they weren't expecting an attack. Yep, um, they, they did were just not lined up like that's right bowling pins. And so that provides a very easy target. And it was a it was a brutal and devastating attack that was clearly decisive for the Japanese. And I don't have a death toll in front of me. Uh, was, I think about three thousand people at least. Okay, we can get back to a death toll. And. It is interesting, I think, also when we think about the nature of conspiracy theories, how this seems so sudden, and it seems so brutal, and it seems so unlikely that such a relatively small nation as Japan would be able to deal such a decisive blow against such a giant like the United States. And, and I mean, to lose those battleships, too. Up until that point, the battleship was basically the the biggest toughest weapon that you could have right that would be the thing that you could sort of extend your country's violence to other places right. by sailing these huge battleships and their battleships at Pearl Harbor were literally broken in half wow and sunk almost immediately no oh. so okay so what started to happen is that people started to get suspicious as to whether this might not have actually been a false flag yeah like Pretty much the next day. Yeah. As soon as people heard about this, they were like, was that Roosevelt that did that? Because it too much adds up, right? I mean, you have Roosevelt who wants to get into the war. You have you know, this devastating attack. It turns out there's one other piece of information that is crucial in this that really seems to be the final nail in this argument um, to that, it, this, that Pearl Harbor was a false flag event. And that is that the Americans had broken the Japanese codes. Well, let me tell you a little bit about how that went down. So, of course, obviously, uh, in war, you do not want to be telling your enemies what's going on. And so, certainly in World War II, there were a whole bunch of um, coding devices that were created. Uh, the most famous, I'm sure, is uh, Germany's uh, Enigma. 
which, uh, I mean, there's been movies, uh, actually countless movies, about how that was uh, decoded, but it was considered to be... One of the an, first use of computers right. over at uh, Bletchley Park. That's right. And it was considered to be, by, at least by the Germans, a, a completely unbreakable coding system, so that you would be able to transmit messages from sender to receiver in such a way that they could not be interpreted no matter what. And when you think you have an unbreakable code, you're far more free to basically send all the messages you want. You're not as cautious about the messages you're sending if you think That's right. that your code can't be broken. In the same way that now we're confident sending emails and texts and photographs of ourselves thinking, yeah, no one well, will ever get these. We It'll need be fine. to have a podcast about that because I've been doing some background work and it is quite scary how little or really no security is out there. Okay, but, but back to the 1930s now, actually. We're going back before the 1940s because what had happened was there was a, a U.S. intelligence officer by the name of William F. Friedman, and uh, he becomes the main code breaker, uh, the guy who runs the show in terms of breaking the Japanese codes. And, okay, oh, I'm, I, now, because we're getting all technical... The point is, the Japanese coding machine was called the... I apologize to any Japanese listeners for my uh, pronunciation. It was the 97 Shiki Obun Injiki. That sounds right. Which is the alphabetical typewriter 97 in translation. And that was the Japanese enigma. But it had been broken by William Friedman and his team. So, and, and when they were able to break the codes of this machine, they built a replica. And they called the replica and the codes being generated by the Japanese, and they had a special term for this, they called it purple. So in, um, not statecraft, what's it called? Surveillance craft? No. Uh, spycraft. So in spycraft, you want to use code names that are really not related at all to the thing that they're talking about. Yes, yeah, so you want to do that, but I, I find historically, especially the Americans and the British... Yeah, they're terrible at they're it. They're terrible at it. Like when the Americans had their uh, secret project where they were using sex trade workers to seduce men and then dose right. them with acid, they yeah. called that... Operation Midnight Climax. <laughs> when the British used a, you can't make this stuff up. When the British used a dead body to plant false information on uh, Operation Mincemeat. <laughs> so even though you're supposed to, they right. often they it seems like just can't help it. Well, in this case, I think they did a pretty good job calling it purple, um, and so they called uh, the codes in the machine purple. They called the people who were uh, breaking the codes magicians. And they called the broken codes, the stuff that they were getting um, translated or, or decrypted, they called that magic. And so you have magic, magicians, and purple. And what had happened was there had been a coded message that was being sent around saying that the Japanese were planning some kind of attack. They were planning some kind of attack, and it was going to happen, probably, it was going to happen in the Pacific, and it was going to happen at one of the following potential locations. Of course, the codes weren't specific enough. And this, together with the other information, really led conspiracy theorists to see this as a false flag event. So there was a bunch of evidence. There was the fact that the codes had been broken, yep. and so... People thought, well, the Americans probably knew about this attack. Yeah. There was the fact, uh, something we haven't mentioned, is that the battleships were all in a row, 
But by World War II, the battleship was no longer a real effective instrument of warfare. Okay. It had become obsolete because of airplanes and aircraft carriers, but the American aircraft carriers were all at its sea, safe. Mm. And so people found that suspicious. Um, people at the time were also surprised at the skill of the Japanese pilots and had assumed that the American pilots should have been better than the Japanese pilots. Of course, there was no evidence for that. In right. fact, they should have known if they hadn't sort of been uh, basically blinded by old-timey racism. Mm -hmm. They should have known these Japanese pilots had already been to war. Right. The American pilots had not. Of course the Japanese pilots were more skilled. Of yep. course they'd have more experience. There, was a, there were a lot of assumptions, um, some of them quite racist, as you say, on both sides, actually. Both by the Japanese um, in their summing up of the Americans and by the Americans' assumption that something like this just could never happen. Uh, from Right. The Japanese could never build a better plane than the Americans, right. when, of course, they clearly had. They couldn't have better pilots than the Americans, when, of course, they clearly did. <laughs> right. Now, what was the assumptions that the Japanese made about the Americans? Well, as I understand it, the Japanese felt like this would be a kind of absolutely decisive blow, that the Americans were so disorganized and so kind of hapless that if you just... They were big and they were strong, but they were... I guess. Paper tiger. Yeah, exactly. And so if you were able to just strike them at the right place at the right time, it would so demoralize them, um, to, you know, turn their operations just topsy-turvy that they would not be able to recover. It would be such a decisive defeat that they'd be like, well, we're not going into the Pacific again. Exactly. And then Japan would be free to um, pursue its imperial uh, program. The lesson to all that appears to be that, once again, racism makes you dumber. Yes, it does. Um, <laughs> but another thing that is worth... Well, one thing that's worth pointing out here, because the, the, the code-breaking really seems such a conclusive piece of evidence. That yeah, I mean, like, even if you set aside the racism, uh, assuming that the pilots and the planes weren't good when they were, even if you put that aside, there's still some good bits of evidence for yeah. a false flag here. That's right. The codes are probably the most important ones. They are. But here is a crucial piece of detail. Um, and this took me a little while to uncover. There are different kinds of codes. Uh, and there are different kinds of codes intended for different types of people. So there are even commercial codes, um, you, uh, cryptography. So if, again, you mentioned earlier email and stuff like that. If you and I engage in encryption, uh, it might be for commercial purposes. So that somebody else doesn't hear how brilliant our next podcast is going to be or, <laughs> or something our like that. recipe for root beer. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you, of course, have the military codes. And, and so, of course, this is what we've been talking about. However, there's another category uh, where diplomats encrypt their information because, of course, they do deal with sensitive information that not everybody should know about. And also there's frequently some crossover between mm -hmm. diplomats and just outright spies. That's right. And also diplomats in the military, because you do need to have your diplomats somewhat on board with what's going on. However, the difference here is that the diplomatic codes are often a lot vaguer, especially when it comes to things like uh, real-time military operations. Which the diplomats might not even have access to. They might not even know what is happening. Exactly. And they need to be kept in the dark to some extent, as you say. And so what the Americans were reading were diplomatic codes, which were a lot vaguer than if they had actually broken the military codes. And the military codes would have said things like, uh, we are going to this place at this time. The following ships are going in this direction exactly. at this speed. Exactly. Whereas the diplomatic code said something like, 
there's going to be a big event in the next couple of weeks in this area um, and you know this will be decisive and it said something quite vague like that and so when people uh, mention things like why was uh, the base at Pearl Harbor not put on high alert if the American government knew that something was coming it was well because they didn't actually know where it was coming Right, it was they didn't too... know where or when. They had a general window of, I think, something like two or three weeks, and a general area which was something like the Pacific. Uh, which is a big area. It's a big area, and it's uh, not the kind of thing that I think... And I think it was a judgment call, but people decided, look, we are not going to put all of our bases on high uh, alert for the next you know, indefinite amount of time. And so... Uh, when I first heard this code-breaking uh, evidence, I swayed in one direction. But then when I heard, when I did a bit more research and I dug a bit deeper, I'm sort of coming around to the feeling that Pearl Harbor was not a false flag event. It was a well-organized attack by the Japanese military. That's right. But it might have been an event that was convenient, in a sense. See, and I think that's a crucial thing because a lot of people said the evidence that this was a false flag is that Roosevelt wanted to go to war and then this attack happened and that allowed him to go to war. Mm -hmm. But what that ignores is that even after that attack, America still didn't declare war on Germany. Huh. And that was the war that people thought Roosevelt wanted, right. was to go to war with Germany. And even after the attack at Pearl Harbor, the Americans did not declare war on Germany, just on Japan. It was the Germans who then declared war on the United States in one of Hitler's many, 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 many poor decisions. Right. Or, although for us, a good decision, because it meant a swifter end to Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess one of the lessons that I got out of this is that even though something can look like a false flag, sometimes it can just be a convenient uh, event that can be taken advantage of. Yeah, that's. I think that's... And actually, going back to Nazi Germany, I think we have another example. People look to something like the burning of the Reichstag, mm -hmm. which happened early on in sort of the Nazi rise to power. The Reichstag, of course, being the German parliament, and it burned down, and that allowed the fear that that, that event caused allowed the Nazis to enact a bunch of laws and to clamp down on civil rights and to throw a bunch of people in prison and to seize more power. And so a lot of people said, well, that must have been another false flag. They must have burned down their own parliament. Hmm. But if you look at the evidence, it was probably just a guy, mm -hmm. uh, forget, a, a Dutch guy, I forget his name, okay. um, who may have been slightly mentally ill. Now, the Nazis lied about that event. They said it was a massive communist conspiracy mm -hmm. that caused this burning down. But they didn't cause it to happen. They lied about it and took advantage of it. But they didn't cause it. Right, right. I think that's an important distinction. You're absolutely right. Um, and it's interesting how blurry the lines can get because we have real false flags. Oh, and for we sure. know that countries that want to start wars need some kind of pretense to do it. So, uh, in fact, something that we'll talk about in a later podcast the Americans basically get into the Vietnam War yes. on a false flag. That's right. And it's so interesting that I think we have to dedicate maybe an entire episode, maybe, um, but or maybe it'll be part of something larger. But there's a whole litany of uh, history. I mean, uh, there's the Remember the Maine. Oh yeah, the 1890s. 
the Americans uh, sort of were trying to flex their muscles a little bit, and they send a battleship called the USS Maine to Cuba, where Spain has kind of been messing with Cuba, and America at that point has decided that, listen, Europe is staying out of the Americas from, from now on. And so the fact that Spain was down there in Cuba, the American government under McKinley was like, ah, we're going to deal with this. So they sent down their battleship, their biggest, strongest, toughest battleship in the 1890s, to basically off the coast of Havana, where it then just explodes. <laughs> and back home, again, the American people don't want to go to war, but the newspapers start running headline after headline saying like remember, remember the main, the main yeah. to hell with Spain right. Spanish treachery kills all these soldiers and because of that in part because of that and because in part because of the explosion of the main America then declares war on Spain and the Spanish-American war happens hmm. but the question is did they actually I mean they they got what they wanted and they even grabbed a little piece of Cuba from that war which they still have which mm -hmm. is Guantanamo Bay but does that mean they blew up their own ship? Uh, we don't have time to get into the whole thing, but uh, according to the forensic reports I've read, it's much more likely it just blew up. It was not a good ship. Okay. In fact, other ships that had been made by the same design had also just randomly blown up. No. <laughs> because they were just such a poor design. So again, we have the situation where and it might look like a false flag. Right. Maybe the government takes advantage of the situation. Maybe this is something they wanted to have happen doesn't necessarily mean they caused it. Just because you benefit from something doesn't mean that you caused it to happen. That's right. That, that's that's a good point. I mean, if I find a hundred bucks on the ground when I leave our recording today, does not mean that because I... Because somebody dropped their wallet. doesn't mean yeah, that... That was my fault, that they that I made them drop their wallet. Of course, yeah. But I, I do see how these things can get quite blurry. How you could mistake a... I guess I, I, I hate to call anything to do with war a happy coincidence, but mm. you can you could mistake these uh, these sort of an opportunity. Yeah, these opportunities for something that was actually uh, um, orchestrated by mm. one group. Now you have another example, and I'm curious whether this is actually a false flag or an example of something uh, a little more nuanced and differentiated. Yeah, uh, one week, we, we better take a break because we're about oh, to right. get into some really weird stuff. So let's take a break. All right, so now we're going post-war. We're going to the 1960s. Uh, so now we're not in World War II, now we're in the Cold War. Oh yeah. And this has to do with Cuba, and maybe you could explain a little bit about why the American government had this, such a serious hate on for this tiny little island off the coast of Florida. Well, that dislike did not always exist. Um, Cuba, before it, before Che Guevara and Fidel Castro and the rebels took over and created what eventually became a communist state there allied with the Soviet Union, before that, 1950s, 1940s, Cuba was a kind of um, holiday destination place for the United States. Run by the mob. Run by the mob. 
which all of this stuff again i mean we're just getting conspiracy after conspiracy because the mob after gets thrown out by um castro and they come back to the united states and they hook up with the cia and they you know try and think of ways to get rid of uh castro okay but i'll leave that for yeah for you again, and for later yeah. <laughs> but um the, the cold war is essentially um a, an un a war that is not fought Oh, how do I put this? It's unconsummated. Well, except, except it is. It's partially consummated. Exactly, right? So, okay, the Cold War basically is between the Soviet Union at that time, um, the, the communist uh, state of the uh, Soviet Union, and the Americans, and all their allies. And the world during the, well, since the uh, end of the Second World War until the fall of the Berlin Wall, a lot of the world could be divided into essentially Soviet domain and American territories. Yeah, I mean, it's probably weird for younger people to realize this now, but it, the world was basically cut in two. Yeah. yeah. And there was almost no interaction between those, those two parts of the world, between That's the right. capitalists and the communist parts. That's right. Now, I mean, I guess there was a third part that nobody cared about, but if anything was interesting or oil-rich or in any way strategic in military or commercial senses, um, they were fought for or allied to either the Soviet Union or the United States. Okay, um, the Cubans have a revolution, and the... They kick the, out the mob? Yes, and the long and the short of it is that they then get allied to the Soviet Union. So now for the Americans, they've got a little pocket of the Soviets. A little Soviet yes. pocket, just like you could swim there from Florida. Yeah, I think it's 90 miles off the coast of Florida, and I don't know what that is in kilometers, but, it, you know, it's not that far. If you were going to fight the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, and, and you had that massive ocean between them, then... You know, it's a buffer. I mean, it's a buffer. Makes you feel a bit safe. And the Soviets are, you know, they really got to develop like very good missile technology before they become a serious threat to you at home. But what if? What if they could set up missiles ninety, you know, miles out, you know, off the coast of Florida? Now you could hit Miami with a catapult. Exactly. Now everything in the United States becomes a potential target in this war. And and not only that, I mean, that's a huge strategic advantage to have that little that little island so close to the states but also i feel like it's a bit of a propaganda tool it could mm -hmm. be like hey even in the heart of capitalism right. look what we have here we've got this little island this little communist paradise yeah yeah and i i i uh I, it was probably a great coup for the Soviets, too, to have a little bit of a warm spot to go to. <laughs> right, because the Soviet Union was tended not to be that warm a no. place. <laughs> that was probably, a, if you were... If you were with the uh, Soviet military, I bet you that was the that was the assignment you wanted. Yeah, not, except not that, Siberia. Except that I did hear about um, actual life of Soviet soldiers in Cuba in the early '60s, and it was hot and sweaty and a lot more difficult than I'm portraying it now. But basically. Uh, when this alliance happens, um, this becomes, for the United States, uh, just untenable. And their policy from the 60s onwards is to get rid of Castro and to overthrow the uh, Cuban uh, government, the revolutionary government, and to institute something closer to um, American-friendly uh, capitalism. Now, they had all sorts... We're not going to get into it in this podcast, but they had all sorts of bizarre plans, the CIA... Oh yeah, to kill Castro, like just Keystone Cop style, like 
farcical nonsense. Again, you could not make this stuff up. I mean, it sounds like a Looney Tunes skit, you know, like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. I mean, one of them was they wanted to smuggle a an explosive cigar. Mm-hmm. And if he well, was, he did like his cigars. Right. And so if he had lit this cigar, it would have blown his face off. Um, I think there was, they wanted to spray beard defoliant on him so his beard would fall that's off. Right, and because, then the Cuban people would be like, I'm not listening to you. No that, beard. That's right. Because uh, apparently his beard was some symbol that's of right. It was like Samson. That was yeah. his <laughs> That was his power. Uh, uh, right. So the Americans, they are furious at the fact that Cuba is there being all communist just off the coast of Florida. But what are you going to do about it? I mean, there was the Bay of Pigs invasion, which we'll get mm-hmm. to in a different podcast, we'll which was yeah. kind of a disaster. But then they come up with, this is a formerly classified document from the Department of Defense. That, well, this was written in 1962. Okay, written in 1962. Written in 1962. And declassified. And the project, the top secret, like ultra top secret project, was called Northwoods. 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 And it was basically uh, led by uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The Joint Chiefs of Staff were like um, a group of advisors in military affairs to the president, a guy called Lemnitzer. And this is Lemnitzer's baby. This is his plan. This is how they can deal with Cuba. Because if they just invade Cuba, again, the international community is going to be unhappy. It's going to seem unjustified. It's going to look like a big guy picking Mm -hmm. on a little tiny guy. Could cause World War Three, which right. would be a nuclear exchange, which would destroy the entire world. So how could you justify invading this tiny little island? And of course the answer? False flag. Use a false flag. Now I'm going to read directly, and you haven't, you haven't heard any of this. I have not so heard this, no. You're in for a real treat. Okay. So you are reading now from the unclassified Project Northwood documents yep. written in 1962 by the ab- Department of Defense about a potential plan to create a false flag for the justifications of eventually invading Cuba. Yeah, the title is a Pretext to Justify U.S. Military Invention in Cuba. And it goes through a bunch of things. Uh, since it would seem desirable to use legitimate provocation as the basis for U.S. military inv- intervention in Cuba, a cover and deception plan to include requisite preliminary actions, such as has been developed in response, could be executed as an initial effort to provoke Cuban reactions. So, they go through a list of things that they think that the American government should carry out. Uh, start rumors. Land friendly Cubans in uniform over the fence to stage and attack on the base. That sounds pretty familiar. Uh-huh. You dress up your own people like the other side and get them to attack your own base. Right. Like, that is classic false flag. Uh, capture fake saboteurs inside the base. Uh, have friendly Cubans start riots near, the, near your own base so it seems like you're being attacked by rioters. Uh-huh. Blow up ammunition inside your own base. Start fires. Burn your own aircraft on the airbase. Lob mortar shells from outside of the base into your own base. Some damage to installations would be one of the problems there. Uh, Capture assault teams approaching from the sea. Of course, those assault teams would be your own people. Capture militia group, which storms the base again. Sabotage ship and harbor. Sink ship near harbor entrance. Conduct funerals for mock victims. Uh, The United States would respond by executing offensive operations to secure water and power supplies, destroying artillery and mortar emplacements, which threaten the base. So this is just a checklist of all kinds of possible things the Americans could do to themselves in order to justify an invasion of Cuba. Dress up your own people like they're Cubans and attack yourself. It gets 
much weirder. Now, just so I'm clear, is this base that we're talking about, is this in Guantanamo? Uh, yeah, this would have been the Guantanamo base, which was the, the base that they occupied after the Spanish American okay. War in 1890. So they're going to then lob stuff at themselves on, okay. They talked about creating a fake terror campaign from a Cuban terrorist group, which hmm. you would then have to respond to. Um, the terror campaign, this is, I'm quoting again, the terror campaign could be pointed at Cuban refugees seeking haven in the United States. Listen to this part. Quote, we could sink a boatload of Cubans en route to Florida, real or simulated. Huh. So we could pretend we did it, or you know what? We could just do it. We could just sink and kill a bunch of people and blame it on a terrorist group. Now, what kind of person would make the decision to actually do it to real people when you could have just faked the whole thing. Well, I guess if you want it as realistic as possible, sometimes you need to have real dead people. And that's, that's Lemnitzer for you. Right. Uh, then, they were talking about, and I'm going to nerd out on airplanes again for a second. <laughs> they were talking about getting an American F-86 Sabre, which looked a lot like a MiG. Looked like a lot, a lot like a MiG-15. Okay, so, so for, for, for me and all the people who don't know anything about airplanes... These are all just jet fighters. Okay. The Soviet jet fighter was the MiG-15, the American jet fighter was the F-86. Okay. Um, an F-86 properly painted would convince air passengers that they saw a Cuban MiG. Especially if the pilot of the transport was to announce such fact. So he could come on the radio and be like, Yeah, uh, we're getting buzzed by a Russian MiG right now. And if you look to your left, the Grand Canyon. <laughs> uh, the primary drawback to this suggestion appears to be the security risk inherent in obtaining or modifying an aircraft. However, they say they could probably get one done in about three months. They could build a fake Russian jet fighter in about oh. three months. <clears throat> I continue. Hijacking against civil air and surface craft. It is possible to create an incident which will demonstrate convincingly that a Cuban aircraft has attacked and shot down a chartered civil airliner en route from the United States to Jamaica, Guatemala, Panama, or Venezuela. So what they thought they would do is that they would uh, get an aircraft, they would paint it like a civilian aircraft, and fly it remotely, using remote control, and then shoot it down. Huh. And then say, uh, after broadcasting a mayday, and say, help, help, we're being attacked by MiGs, and then they would shoot down this plane, and then that would justify the attack in Cuba. Now, I know that this document probably doesn't go into this, but how does that help us get to have a war with Cuba if it's the if if the population believes it's the Russians why not then why are we not then immediately into a world war 3 that's a really good question this isn't a very well thought out plan <laughs> which is oh dear. probably why when Lemnitzer brought this to Kennedy who was president at the time and said hey listen we've got a great way to evade Cuba Kennedy not only apparently not only turned down this plan but also fired Lemnitzer okay because this is, like, absurd levels. He's talking about uh, murdering innocent people. He's talking about starting a war under false pretexts. They also had plans, uh, not included in this file, but I've, I've seen other files where they talk about uh, in the space race, if there was an accident in the space race, an American astronaut was killed, they were going to blame that on the Cubans. And maybe, you know, maybe they could even have an accident. And you can't see because it's a podcast. Right. We're doing air quotes. I'm doing air quotes around Not accident. Lots of them. Yeah, lots of them. There are air quotes galore. So this is, like, I am sympathetic to when people, because these days, of course, anytime anything happens, people mm -hmm. immediately jump to the conclusion that's a false flag. Yeah. 
But, you know, listening to that list of things, I'm starting to now reconsider some of the things that I've learned about in history and wondering, well, that does sound a lot like, you know, what, terror campaigns and... Yep, fake terror campaigns, fake attacks, fake hijackings, fake... But there's some important things. Just because that was a plan doesn't mean that there aren't real hijackings, that there aren't real terror attacks, that that there aren't real... that there aren't real military operations. And the other thing too is, what's important about this is that they didn't do it. Right. It was turned down. Okay. And even in this document, they talk about the dangers of it. They're right, like, right, right. a lot of people would have to be in on this. Yeah. And the more people are in on something, the harder it is to keep under wraps. Okay. And so, even though it seems super damning, and I could see why people then, seeing documents like this, would immediately jump to the assumption that pretty much anything they encounter sure. has got to be a false flag. I think it's important to remember the lessons of Pearl Harbor, where arrogance and racism basically convinced people there's no way we could have been attacked. There's no way we're so big and strong that yeah. we could be hurt in this way. No, that's a good point. But the truth is, yes, of course people can be hurt. So I guess we need to take each of the events in isolation and look at the facts and details. And one of the most important questions to always ask in a conspiracy theory is how many people would have to be in on this Right. So look at the... um, Look at the Gleivitz incident. You don't need that many people to be in on that. Even the radio station personnel weren't in on that. Mm-hmm. You just needed a few soldiers. Right. And I guess that would be similar with the Mukden incident. Yep. And even that could be kept quiet. Yeah, and, 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 and neither could the Gleivitz incident. <laughs> That's a, yeah, and, those, and those are good were, those, and the, Like, there was only a few people involved in that, and then the one guy whose name was... No yucks. Even, yeah, eventually there was a, just a handful of people who were behind that false flag, and still somebody gets to no yucks, and he, and he gives up the... Right. Now, okay, so none of these things happened, but these that we were... Know that we know of. Well, indeed, I mean, uh, when we get to things like the Bay of Pigs invasion or... Gulf um, of Tonkin. The Gulf of Tonkin. It sounds eerily familiar when you just, uh, to what you've just read to me. Yeah, and I should point out, despite the fact that Lemnitzer gets fired, uh, he is then made, I believe, the head of NATO operations in Europe. Oh, okay. In 1963, after Kennedy's death. Okay. And I've just, uh, in preparation for some future podcasts, have been reading One Minute to Midnight, which recounts the Cuban Missile Crisis. And a lot of these things were, well, less the false flag, but there were a lot of secret operations that really follow in this vein. So, hmm. So we have then false flags that are real, false flags that are assumed to be false flags, but they are not real. And we have a lot of evidence that a lot more were planned. Well, this is the way I look at it. So we have... We have attacks, we have examples of attacks that are false flags. Things like uh, Glavitz, things like... Mukden. Mukden. We also have events that happen that are not planned, but are taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And in that category, I would have things like the burning of the Reichstag. The Nazis probably didn't burn down their own parliament, but they did take advantage of it and lie about it. Mm -hmm. And then we have events like Pearl Harbor, which are not false flags and are simply attacks. Right. So what we have to be able to do is, again, using critical reasoning and logic, try to figure out any time there is some kind of event like this, which does this fall into? Mm-hmm. Are we being lied to? Are we being sort of lied to? Or is this actually the truth? Right. And that 
that becomes very difficult to do. I'll give you one more example, one that's quite recent. Uh, this one happened in 1991, where, as you recall, uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, Iraqi army oh, invaded right, okay. Kuwait. Right, yeah. And again, at that time, the American people were not particularly interested yeah, in, exactly. in the prospect of going to another war. And one of the most uh, important events that took place that started to convince people that they should was uh, a 15-year-old Kuwaiti girl who went in front of Congress, the Human Rights Caucus, and told this horrifying story that Iraqi soldiers had not just invaded Kuwait, but had gone into hospitals, uh, murdered patients, they'd gone into nurseries with, with babies in incubators, and they had torn the babies from the incubators mm. and left them to die. And of course, this is horrifying. These are atrocities, mm -hmm. and justifiably, people became very upset to hear this. The problem was, uh, this girl was not a nurse, as she said. <laughs> she was actually the uh, daughter of an ambassador, and the whole thing was arranged not by the government, by a public relations firm. Oh dear. Uh, Hill and Knowlton, their client was a, uh, a, Ku a Kuwaiti-sponsored organization called Citizens for Free Kuwait, who were lobbying Congress to try to get American mm -hmm. uh, assistance in the war. And so there's, an, and of course, that first war, that Gulf War, well, yeah, that I mean, was the sort of the first. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it goes back even to the eighties and seventies and sixties. But I mean that that first war with Saddam Hussein was instrumental in basically shaping everything that's happened in the that's last, right. including the second Gulf War, including yeah. the formation of ISIS, including to a degree what happened with September eleventh. Now this brings up an interesting question, though, because as you were narrating that, I'm thinking, well, this sounds a lot like, uh, you know, the second version of the Gulf War, where you had uh, General Colin Powell go in front of uh, the UN and claim that they had decisive proof of weapons of mass destruction, which turned out then, and, and that was the basis on why the Americans invaded Iraq. Because you didn't want, I think something. The line went something to the effect. You don't of want the smoking, smoking gun, gun to be, be a mushroom, mushroom cloud. Exactly, right? which is a hell of a line. It's it stuck. It struck. It stuck with me. But of course, that was not true, and it was decisively demonstrated to be not true by a very nice New Yorker our article, which really went through uh, the uh, both British and I think American intelligence, um, where the Brits were actually talking to the Americans saying, you know, we have, we know this is not the case. But that raises this question that I was going to ask you. Is there a difference between a false flag where you have uh, apparently enemies of uh, another country attacking you and just deception that leads to a war? I think you could call it a false flag anytime you are lying about an attack. Hmm. I think that's the defining characteristic of the false flag, because okay. you lie about an attack. You might actually carry it out, mm -hmm. like it talked about in Northwoods, or what actually happened with Gleivitz, or you might simply lie, as we'll talk about with something like the Gulf of Tonkin. Okay. I guess... It's hard to conclude this podcast, because there's so much... There's, there's so much. <laughs> I guess if there's a takeaway from this, I would say this. It is vital for citizenry of a nation to pay close attention to their government, in particular pay close attention when the government is trying to lead them to war. Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't mean that you should just automatically assume every event is a false flag. In fact, a lot of the things that have been called false flags recently I find just absurd. I know you didn't want to talk about this because you get too sad and angry about it. Yeah. But people who talk about <clears throat> Sandy Hook, the murder of children. Right. People who make the argument that that somehow was this false flag that didn't happen, and the whole point was to to bring about gun control. Yeah, there are some fundamental flaws with that argument. Even setting aside the immorality of mm -hmm. of ignoring the fact that children died. Uh, one, basically, the whole town would have to be in on it. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that you have crisis actors who come in, so then what? They have to hide the rest of their life, or they have to spend the rest of their right. life pretending that they are these people. Right. And not only that, and probably more importantly, and this is something that I have yet to hear any of these Sandy Hook truthers quote. Th th scare those, quotes were, again. those were scare quotes, scare right quotes there. Again. Yeah. Any of them to uh, explain there was no gun control after that event. Right. So if they had pulled off this elaborate event to get gun control, the question is why didn't they end up no. with gun control? No. So, as is always the case, we should be suspicious when our government tries to lead us to war. We should also be suspicious of claims of false flags. Mm -hmm. Basically, be suspicious all the time. Yes. Okay. I think we can end it That's on that. That's an ending. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, be suspicious all the time.